Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachet Yevamot, DAP Kuf Yadalad, page 114. We've released our information about our upcoming SIEM, which will, God willing, be on July 10th. Please register. Uh, hopefully, we will also be able to share soon who our special guest speaker will be. Uh, and we look forward to finishing up Yevamot, and then we're going to be on to Ketubot. Uh, so the Gemara here is, we're going to finish a parak today, and to wrap this parak up, the Gemara is in a pretty lengthy discussion about whether or not we have to prevent a katan from sinning. And so it brings a variety of uh, sort of halachic uh, examples about whether or not if you see a katan do something or a katan might be set up to sin, do you have to prevent them from doing so? Um, and then they bring this as proof as to whether or not you have to prevent a katan from sinning. But I want to pay attention to one particular well, two sets of cases here that I actually think are very sort of like real life in a certain way. And so the first one is, is as follows. Toshma ben chaver So the case we have here is a chaver. So remember, a chaver is a person who is very meticulous to keep certain halachot. And son of a chaver uh, basically is going to visit his maternal grandfather. And that maternal grandfather is an amhaaret, which means there's somebody who is not careful about these types of laws. We don't worry about whether or not that son is going to be fed by the grandfather food that basically did not have Truman Maser taken from it. Let's say the father finds in the katan's hand, in the son's hand, fruit. Right? He doesn't have to separate uh, he doesn't have to separate Truman Maser from it. Rabbi Yochanan says, no, we, this case only actually has to do with demai, right? Which is food that we're not sure whether or not Truman Maser was taken from. But if we for sure know that it was taken from, sorry, if we know it's Tevel, meaning we know maybe you would have to separate it. Um, I find this case to be fascinating because I actually think sort of the modern day scenario of some of this would be, you know, is areas of kashrut, right? Like this kind of is talking about in a way, what do we do if we have family members who maybe don't keep halakha exactly the way that we do? And ultimately what the what this teaching says to us is, we kind of don't worry about it when it comes to a child. Like we sort of say that it's allowed. And I think that's a very, very bold statement because remember, Truman Maser to do Raisa, I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't use the language of kosher or not kosher the way that we do about certain foods today, but eating food or, you know, that truma was not taken from is just actually not okay. <laughs> um, so then the Gemara goes on and says, what is the reason that they were lenient when it came to demai again, which is food that we're not sure if truma and masa was taken from, hava died by lasure, right? So that would infer that it was definitely we knew that Truman Maser was not taken from, then the father would be required to take Truman Maser. But I'm a Rabbi Yochanan, and didn't Rabbi Yochanan himself say, but Osa al-Dat Abid, only when he's acting with his father's consent. Elo Rabbi Yochanan, Safuke Mispakale, Kai Hachamidachai, Kai Hachamidachai. Rabbi Yochanan was uncertain with this halacha. And, and in this case, he refutes it, and in that case, he refutes it. In other words, he actually didn't have a definitive conclusion about this. And so he taught differently in two different cases. 
But again, the idea that just this scenario is entertained and the idea that we sort of don't worry about it, at least for the child, maybe the father has to take Truman Maser, to me is pretty mind-blowing. Then the Gemara goes on again. Toshma ben chaver kohen kohen Let's say we have a chaver who's a kohen who would be very, very careful to make sure he didn't eat truma that was tame. And his son goes to his, the maternal grandfather who's a kohen amaaretz, who means he's a kohen who was not so careful that his truma was always truma tame. We don't worry that he's going to be fed truma that is tame. And if we find fruit in his hand, we don't, we basically, we don't take it from him. So even though we're worried about Chuma that could be Tame, which again is a Del Risa prohibition, we don't have to make sure that the, the, the Katan doesn't sin. Bitruman Dirabanan, right? But the Gemara says, no, maybe that's not really a proof because maybe this is referring to Truma that was separated by rabbinic law and not Torah law. But again, to me, the interesting point here is, is that the Gemara doesn't say, yeah, if you're a chaver, you may not eat in the Am Ha'aretz house. And to me, at least, this felt like a very, very sort of real life, you know, sort of scenario where we sort of have that family members may not all have the same standards. How do we make these things work? So I, I just thought this was a great passage, uh, you know, in the Gemara itself that I think you know, teaches us something about today, how to treat, you know, family members with a variety of different observances. It brings me maybe Chagiga a little bit where we, there was a lot of discussion about the Chaver and the Ama'aretz and, and again, that practicality of how are we going to explore all those different kinds of cases. Um, I'm moving on to our new parak, believe it or not, chapter 15. This time, the Mishnah is not all lumped together at the beginning. It's a normal, brief Mishnah introducing the chapter. Um, and I think also, um, in a very different way, real-life scenarios. Uh, we have a couple, and they're going traveling. They go overseas. Shalom beino levena v'shalom ba'olam. If they are, if there's peace between him and her, meaning the couple themselves are not at odds, they're not fighting, and there's peace in the world. That's an interesting caveat. I thought, meaning there's no war going on. Uva and then after this trip, she comes and she says, "Mate ba'ali," she says, "My husband died," and they don't have children. Tinasei, mate ba'ali titiabim. Um. So if, you know, either she could get married or she could have Yibum, depending, if she doesn't, if he, let me say more carefully. If she could get married, they, my husband died, and they didn't have children, then she has, then she's Zakuk to Yibum in, in the event that there's a brother to marry, right? Shalom beino levena umil olam, if there is peace between the couple, but there's war in the world, and we know there's, this is true, right? This is the kind of thing that really could be true. Or the couple was fighting and there's peace in the world. And she comes forward and she says, my husband died. She's not believed in her statement that her husband died if she was known to be fighting with her husband or she's, they're not fighting, but there's known to be war in the world. Um, the question, Part of it might be, could she be lying, but also could she be mistaken? What happened if they, you know, encountered trouble? And 
is wrong. Rabbi Huda Omer Leolam this is wild, I think. Rebuta said she's only believed, she's only considered credible if she shows up to say that she died. And the way she shows up to the court is she's crying and she's torn her clothes in mourning, right? And then, then we could say, oh, she's telling the truth. Which, of course, I, I, your data, can you join me in my amusement here, right? Because I'm sure you do, because what's going on, right? Either she could be a liar if she's actually lying, or she could be somebody who stole it. She's not going to show up with all of her emotions hanging out to say, oh, now we'll believe her in her drama. Either way, if she's saying that her husband has died, you know, again, she might be mistaken, but if she's telling the truth, she doesn't need torn garments and tears to be believable. Yeah, um, there's love. something about this that's pretty unbelievable. You know, like in a way, like she has to show proof physically, the evidence has to be on her. <laughs> right? Uh, like, yeah. okay, I, you know, too close to current events. Amrulo, achadzo, achadzo, tinase. And the Gemara says, or I'm sorry, we're in the Mishnah still. The Mishnah says to him, meaning the, the other members of Chazal, say to Rabbi Huda, no, like you're making an incorrect distinction or assumption here, meaning the woman who cries and the woman who does not cry on the basis of their own testimony, meaning, and I'm so relieved that the Mishnah concludes the way that we wanted to, to say like, Rabbi Huda, what are you saying here? To, you know, that, that she's only believed that she's crying. Um, her testimony is considered legitimate as long as there's no mitigating circumstances that might put it into doubt. Right. Meaning somebody who's having a very acrimonious marriage, you know, he might not be dead and she might say that he's dead. We kind of understand where that could be coming from. Or likewise, you know, again, if in a time of war, people get separated and there's no way to find out if the person's alive, you thought he was dead. There could be an error. So I appreciate this mission both for its conclusions and also for its trips along the way that are, you know, actively rejected here, I think. Um I think it's really interesting, and the Gemara talks about this. I think it's really interesting that current events have bearing on the circumstances, you know, the the credibility of what she has this, when she comes to the Beit Din to to speak. And the Gemara says, you know, okay, we understand, you know, these cases kind of we understand they make sense. What about a case of Ravon? Ravon meaning famine. Is famine like war? Or is famine not like war? Is famine worse than war? Right, meaning under what circumstances would she need to come forward? Famine, somebody could die, right? Your husband could die. She says, she says to the court, my husband died. Is that treated like a time of war? Or is she all the more believed because indeed famine? And then the Gemara goes on, you know, we're coming to the end of the daf here. It talks about Dever. Dever, you'll recall the phrase from the Pesach Haggadah, meaning pestilence. If there's a time of plague, again, is that like war? Is that not like war? And to what extent do we say, well, it's more likely that the person would have died? We certainly know that people have survived through, you know, times of plague. So the fact that there's pestilence doesn't automatically mean that the guy is dead, right? So um, my point here is, I think it lines up, you know, with what you were saying in terms of real life cases. This is a very real death, both from the previous parak and from the new parak. It's the same way too. It's a very real death uh also you know it's going to sort of go through like 
how do we believe testimony? What clues does a person give uh, for testimony? Exactly. Um, and there's much to talk about, but we've come to the end of the DAF. So we'll close. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this DAF. Thank you to Reverend Eat Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. And also sign up for the Zoom.